I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Celtic Soul Podcast. I'm Andrew Millen. It's episode 66, and my guest on the show today will be Fergus Dowd. Fergus is the chairperson of the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund. He's wrote for numerous publications, including our own More Than 90 Minutes, United We Stand, Beyond the Last Man, Pogma Gold, Nutmeg, and The Football Pink. He's also the host of a podcast entitled A Road Less Travelled. Folks, if you're a Celtic-minded business, a Celtic supporters club, and you like what we're doing with the podcast and across our independent media fan platform and would like to sponsor an episode, you can do so by contacting us at info at or contact us through social media and we'll fill you in on the details. If you're a listener or a reader or both, you can support our platform by visiting CelticFansing.com where you can become a member, subscribe, or you can buy or donate for the price of a pint. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality, independent fan journalism, fanzines, podcasts, videos for Celtic Fanzine TV and fan events. Please keep your suggestions coming in for guests you would like us to have a chat with on the podcast and we'll reach out to them and see if we can get them on. Here's a few comments we received since last week. This is well worth a listen. Really honest and refreshing to hear the thoughts of Paul Heaton talking about people chasing being famous and many other subjects. Check it out. Well done, Andrew. And I can visit Seamus Connolly in Glasgow. Spent the afternoon with Anne-Marie listening to both episodes of the Paul Heaton podcast in the garden. Brilliant. That comes in from Billy Nolan in Dundalk. Congratulations, Andrew, on another excellent show. Following on from the superb part one with Paul, so good to hear a man that hasn't forgotten his working class principles. Paul spoke so well. Like it was him, Tony in Sunderland, and he also goes on to say, loved hearing the closing quality tune, Blackwater Banks, which Paul and Jackie performed so well at a memorable concert at the Sunderland Empire. Thank you, Tony. Tremendous again from Paul Heaton. So natural, and he seems sound as well. The talk of the Italian football brought me back to the Sunday Italian football on Channel 4. Well done again, bud, and that comes in from Mark in Glasgow. This is an amazing listen, part one and part two. Never wanted them to end. Paul Heaton is a hero and well worth listening to. And that comes in from our friends at the Patriot Game podcast, and I want to give them a shout-out. They, they only started a couple of weeks ago, and already they've had some 
brilliant podcast and the latest one with soon-to-be world champion Belfast boxer Michael Connan. So keep up the good work, boys. Keep thinking outside the box. And here's one from our long read, Roy Aiken, Commitment, Determination and Leadership, which was our midweek long read. Cheers for that. Hail, hail, loved it. Roy Aiken, a bit of a hero. Larson7 on Twitter. So folks, keep all the comments coming in and thanks again for listening and reading. Well, it's Ibrox again on Sunday when Celtic return to action against the Rangers. And hopefully we can put an end to their league unbeaten record and restore some much-needed pride for the current bunch of players who wear the famous hoops. There may be no fans in the stadium, but Celtic will be representing a worldwide fan base as the favourite team of the Irish diaspora, spread, as I said, throughout the world. And it's going to be good for our friends in Glasgow who are back in their beer gardens. I hope the big tellies are coming out for that. I'd love to be witches, but unfortunately I'm still stuck in my own county. After last week's Super League and British League talk, can I ask all our listeners to consider joining the Celtic Trust as we continue to try and unite all the small shareholders with an aim to getting 20% of the club into fan ownership and give us a real say at the club. There's nothing to fear, only good can come out of controlling more of the club. There is a lot of talk at the moment surrounding season books. As season book holders, we have no say in the running of the club. We are looked upon as customers, and that's the simple fact. The only way we can have a real say in the running of our club is through holding more shares in the club. And remember, it can be done. Fergus Dowd is the chairperson of the Patrick O'Connor Memorial Fund. He has wrote for numerous publications over the years, including More Than 90 Minutes, United We Stand, Beyond the Last Man, Pogma Gold, Nutmeg and The Football Pink. He's also the host of a Road Less Travelled podcast. Hi, Fergus. You're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. Before we kick off, it was you who had arranged my podcast with the Devon and Walker, Linda Carroll. Where are we now with the strike? Because I'm reading and seeing some alarming images of what has happened to these walkers. Some mothers, some grandmothers. They have been treated very badly at the moment. Can you bring us up to date? Um, yeah, Andrew, hi. Um, thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, I suppose the, the Devon's workers, um, I suppose there's positives and negatives at the moment. The, the workers are 383 days now on the, on the picket, on the strike. Um, I think it's the longest, now the longest strike in Irish history. Last Thursday night, sadly, the Gardaí were called into Henry Street based on a high court injunction from the liquidator KPMG. There's, there's about 23 million worth of stock in the 11 stores around the, the country. And um, the women actually had to chain themselves into the loading bay. Uh, the gates were cut down and the guards were called. There was women lifted out of from the loading bay. Some had their tops removed, some had their bras ripped. A lot of them bruised, battered, and just absolutely scandalous. As you say, these are women in their 50s and 60s. They've given decades of service to the company. They're looking for their two plus two. And, you know, it, it, the treatment on Thursday night in Henry Street, and then again following that in on Friday night in Tralee, was absolutely scandalous. Um, but on the positive, um, yesterday, a friend of mine, Tony Eason, he's an artist from Salford, um, he presented uh, a piece of artwork of a lady called Helen Blakely from the Newbridge picket, uh, standing in front of a truck, a 40-foot truck on the picket. Um, he, 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 he aptly named the artwork No Woman, No Cry, um, taken from the Bob Marley song. And um, that was presented yesterday to the Working Class Movement Library in Salford. So there's a little bit of, you know, for the women and, and, and for those workers, um, there's, 
that's gone into the museum there in Salford. And we sent over items as well about the, about the, um, strike. Obviously, uh, pamphlets, leaflets. We sent over a placard and it's the first collection that includes a face mask because you have to remember these women are on, you know, six to 12 hour shifts, uh, in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. They're, they're a full year, you know, locked out. And I suppose, yeah, you're correct. I mean, I, I came across this story uh, through writing an article. It was basically uh, an article for an Irish publication. Um, I was uh, I was initially looking at football, the rights of footballers, the formation of the PFA union uh, in the in the 1900s, and the death of a of a footballer called Thomas Blackstock who uh, played for Manchester United. He was playing a reserve team game against St. Helens. He went up to head the ball and um, he collapsed on the pitch. He was taken into the dressing room and he subsequently died. Uh, That was in 1906. And um, Manchester United refused to pay out any insurance to the family. Um, He was a Scottish man. And um, from that, there was a chap uh, called Billy Meredith and Charlie Roberts who played for Manchester United. And they formed... The, the players union, the PFA in England, uh, in 1908. Um, now you have to realize they were, they were castigated, Andrew. The, the team were known as the outcasts. The British media called them the outcasts because they wanted a former football players union. They were banned from playing by their own club. They were banned from playing by the English Football Association. But eventually, you know, through the efforts of these players, the PFA is there today and, and they have a union. So I was writing about that. I was also writing about Patrick O'Connell and about not so his football life, but what he worked at. Um, he was a glassier uh, at the start of his life and then he worked in Boland's Mills. And football was his escape, his escape from an era where children were used as scavengers in, in Boland's Mills, where, where workers lost arms and legs. And where the mill fever was prevalent and, uh, you know, people died f- from working in, in such environments. And uh, his escape was to go to Belfast Celtic. And um, so I was, I was, I was talking about all this and I was also looking at, you know, his life in Spain because when he went back to Real Betis after Franco won the war in Seville, then there was more than 11 concentration camps. So the, the, the fans, the supporters and Real Betis are a club with a, with a great link to Glasgow Celtic in that they wear the colours of the green and white. And, and, um, I was right. I, I was sort of looking at how these fans who supported the club in 1935 when they won La Liga, some of them were now in concentration camps down the road from the stadium. But what I wanted to do was to intertwine that into a, a modern day tale. And that's what I got. I, I, I contacted a lady called uh, Suzanne Sherry, who's um, a Debenhams worker. And I asked her, look, would there be anybody on the picket in Henry Street that lived close to O'Connell, lived near Fitzroy Avenue, lived near Crow Park, where he's from? And she put me in touch with Linda Carroll. Now, Linda, as, as you know, and you, you'd spoken to her, was a lady in her 60s, 62 years of age. I mean, she explained to me, look, I get up at half five every morning to go on a six o'clock shift. You know, she was sitting there in the cold. This was November time I was talking to her, um, you know, for six hours. Um, she'd worked there for, for, for nearly two decades. But she had this incredible story, like this amazing story about her grandfather, you know, that he'd been shot on Bloody Sunday 
Uh, he was age 15. Now, the interesting thing was that Patrick O'Connell's son came home from Manchester. His name was Patrick as well. And he was at that game. And, um, you know, he befriended, the, the family lived in Fitzroy Avenue, the O'Connell family. He befriended a young lad called John William Scott, who was 14 years of age. John William Scott was killed. Patrick O'Connell's son came home with, with bloodstains. And, and I remember speaking to the O'Connell family and Nell O'Connell, who used to live in Fitzroy Avenue, uh, remembers telling the family about that day and, and the hysterics, you know. Um, and then we had, you know, Christopher Duffy, who was Linda's uh, grandfather. And he was, he was only 15. He was shot in the neck, but he survived. And he went on to play for Dublin and, and he won two Leinster championships. And I thought, you know, this is incredible. Like, so I basically intertwined that. But then I went back to Councillor Kieran Mann, who's, who's been supporting the, um, Debenhams workers. And I said to him, look, is there anybody actually documenting these people's stories? Is there anybody sitting down with them? And, 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 you know, because there's, there's some amazing stories, Andrew. I mean, I sat down last week with a chap called Paul Quinn. He's, he's sitting in a hut in Limerick. He's, on O'Connell Street in Limerick. Paul came home from Edinburgh because his mom was sick and he got a job in Debenhams. His father is a former Lord Mayor of Limerick and Paul has been locked out, for, you know, for, for nearly, as mentioned, 380 days. But his dedication, he gets up every morning and his friend Jer is, is on the picket from 2 a.m. till 8 a.m. And then Paul comes in. And, and he, and he went off when it got into winter time, he went off and got equipment to create this hut. And, and I, I remember him telling me that the day that Limerick, who wear green and white like Celtic, just recently won the All Ireland hurling final. They decorated the, um, the hut with green and white colors, the same colors as Limerick. And I remember sending it to the guys in sports foil, you know, after Christmas when they put their book together. And I said to Ray McManus, I said, you can have all the photos of an empty crow park, but this photo of, of Paul sitting outside his hut mm-hmm. is probably the, 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 the photo of the year, you know, decorated in limerick colors and his determination. I just thought it was incredible. Then you have, you know, a young lady down in Tralee called Amy Horrigan, you know, who, who had just bought a house last February. And you have to remember Debenhams, the company, they sent a generic email. You know, so it didn't matter, Andrew, if you worked there for six months, if you worked there for 25 years, everybody got the same email. And that, that lady had just bought her house. She was painting her front room with her mother the day that she got the email. So she just bought a new house. She got, and we know how difficult it is to get onto the property market in this country. And, you know, her life it just ripped apart. You know, and she's been on, uh, on the picket lines to them. So there's these all. So basically what I started to do was to, to, to document the stories. So we took five or six workers and then because of the COVID and, and, and everything that's going on in the country, it's very difficult to get media attention of this story. So the idea, I, I spoke to Kieran and I spoke to Suzanne and, and we decided to start getting, um, you know, people to see if they would send messages. Um, of support, well-known people, maybe footballers and bands and actors and actresses. So, um, like the first person I have to say, he's an absolute gentleman was Alan Thompson who sent the video 
um, former Celtic player, you know, supporting um, the Debenhams workers. And then we had like people like, you know, Lorraine McIntosh from Deacon Blue and Ricky Ross. And Lorraine's family are from Bridgeton, which is, as you know, it's a stone's throw from Celtic Park. And then they were fantastic. And then, you know, we had fantastic support. The Proclaimers, who obviously were involved in the saving of Hibernian, and uh, Peter Hooten, who, who you've had on the show, sent the video. And then, um, I mean, he, he, uh, would, would have obviously, I know you've spoken to about it, about Hillsborough and his involvement in that and, and, you know, fighting for justice for 30 years. So, so we had all those sort of people and Irvin Welch as well on Twitter has shared a lot of our stuff. Um, obviously from, you know, train spotting fame. So, that was a way to get it out and, and to say. So I'm glad to say as well that um, we're currently working with Bohemians Football Club and Shamrock Rovers FC. We're, go- we're going to get the workers from Henry Street to go up to Dalymount Park. Bohemians have donated a jersey. We're going to put um, a slogan on it and um, Debenham Strikers 365 because these women are now out, you know, over a year on both jerseys. We're sending it to the Duncan Edwards Museum in Dudley. It's a, a new museum. Uh, Duncan Edwards was a Busby babe um, who sadly died um, tragically at the age of 21 in 1958. And we've worked with, with Rose Cook, um, who's the curator there of the museum, um, you know, to, to send that over. And I think it's people need to know about this. And maybe, you know, if somebody's listening here today, maybe there's a, a museum in Ireland or there's somebody in Ireland that would be willing to to tell this story. So, I mean, that's what we're up to at the moment. I, I, I'm currently, you know, going through the stories from, I suppose we brought the, the documentation project into two parts. We've, we've, we've taken the worker stories and now we're taking sort of supporter stories and, and the people who support us, you know, some of the people that I've mentioned there and, and their backgrounds to tell people you know, these people get it. They understand what's going on here, and it's totally wrong. We have a half decent listenership. We've 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 a good readership in the fans. In how can we help? Um, I suppose it's just to if if people can 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 share and 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 even Irish people, if they can speak to their local TDs, local councillors, and say, look, this isn't good enough. You know, and 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 hopefully that you know, I know there's a piece of legislation that that we're trying to that. That some of the TDs that are involved here, uh, Mick Barry and and Louise o- O'Reilly from Sinn Féin, are, are trying to get through so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. That these multinationals can't leave Ireland anymore and leave people in such a such a state. You know, I, I think the the great thing about the football world is it, it's an international language. Football is an international language, and true football and and true what 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 we've done writing and contacting footballers, we've been able to get the story out, which is fantastic, because you know we've not just only had support from from Irish people, but but also UK football writers. We've had Sid Lowe, who's, who's based in Spain. We've had Rail Bettis supporters, and we've even we've even I think Alan Thompson's video went as far as the the, the Manchester City supporters in India, which is incredible to think. You know, we got a, we got a lovely message from them. So it's just you know it, it's to put pressure on the people that are that are in charge of this country, uh, Andrew, so that this doesn't keep happening. You know that 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 there's no more Debenhams, that there's no more Linda Carrolls sitting on a picket for more than a year. You know that you know that that this stops now, and hopefully, you know that 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 it doesn't happen again. It's terrible. And I spoke to Linda, and I remember speaking that she was quite nervous um, about talking. But a frail 
lovely woman, but not a woman that should be getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning to go and stand on a picket line. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. And I think, brilliant what you said there about, you know, sending it to the, the sports press because an empty crow park doesn't sum up. That's the Limerick. The Limerick hut is, it's amazing. It's, and it's an image I haven't seen and I hope you'll send it to me because um, it paints a, a picture in my mind of such a big celebration for the people of Limerick. And here's here's one of the, one of the fans sitting in a hut trying to get a few bob what he's owed, not a lot, because I've seen the figures. They're not looking for, they're not looking for millions and millions and millions. They're looking for what they're entitled to, and they've all this stock now that's going to leave the country and be sold off. You know, and the only the only regret I have is that I've shopped in Debenhams. You know, we probably all have. There's a Debenhams in Glasgow. I often went in and got a few bits and pieces in it when I be out for the games, and it just sickens me that um, they're allowed to get away with this, and it sickens me as well that we have a government, the two main parties in this country since the formation of the state maybe and they've always been in government and yet nothing's changed we have I'm, I'm angry here I'm angry because it's it's such a small thing these workers are looking for and they were assured by Debenhams that they would get the redundancy but anyway and, but like, and it's strange as well when you say football unites us because of the the quality fan journalism you do and it's something that's lacking because all we have now is clicking base sites, looking to get clicks so they can get their Google ads and a few quid. Someone I'm putting out four or five articles an hour and here you are researching articles, going in deep. And, and, and it's wonderful. And I, I look I look at who, you, who you've wrote for and they're all respected magazines from, from different backgrounds. You know, some are general football ones, obviously done a bit for us. You know, we stand very well respected fans in. For, from, for me to you, I'd like to say thank you for writing this, this stuff for highlighting because it was you as I said at the start of the podcast that highlighted it to me and all I have to do all you ask from me is a few retweets and that but hopefully now I will get on to the, the local politicians and I will ask them where they stand on this because lip service isn't good enough anymore and when I read a piece and I listened to a politician who was at the who, who witnessed when the police came in and for a grandmother to have a top ripped off and a bra ripped it's absolutely disgusting in a supposedly progressive country. If this hat was happening anywhere else in the world, would be outraged. What's happening on our doorstep, and no one seems to care. The general, you know, the general consensus because it's it's not making headlines in the news anymore. No, I mean it's it's interesting because I've just actually written a piece, Andrew, about the coup in Chile in 1973 and what happened there. You know, the story of Victor Yara. Who, who was a musician in Chile. And, um, it, you know, because he supported Salvador Allende, what happened was they, the, the, the Pinochet regime, they, they basically, uh, used, yeah, they used the Estadio Nacional as a concentration camp, as a detention center. And Yara was one of the people they picked up. Now, the, the, the commander in chief that day in the stadium spotted Yara, brought him down to a table, put a table out in the middle of the pitch. Four officers, they brought him down to the, to the table. They put his, held his hands over onto the table. The officer took out an axe and they, um, they cut off his fingers. And this happened in the same stadium that Garincha and Pele, nine years earlier, had won the World Cup. Um, this was a musician, a folk singer, who sang about, you know, socialist songs, who sang about change in Chile. And, um, he, he, he was, he was then killed that day 
and it's interesting because in 1974, the Republic of Ireland were the first team to play in that stadium after the coup. Um, and Eamon Dunphy, actually, when I was doing my research for this piece, um, he'd gone to the Irish training because um, Ireland were training then in London. And he handed out leaflets about Pinochet and what happened at the at the stadium. But the FAI refused to stop the um, you know the tour to Chile to South America. And Ireland, Ireland went on; they, they won two one against Chile. But what happened in that stadium was absolutely scandalous. And a lot of Chilean refugees came to um, Ireland after that. But it's just you know I think you know in a way football there's just. There's so many incredible stories out there that that people sometimes they're, they're not aware of, and 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 what you know, you know, you think of Patrick O'Connell, you think of, and that's what I like. I, I try to when I'm writing, I try to tell unknown stories and, and stories that will people will like. Geez, I, I never knew that. You know that way. And I think with Victor Yara, I've I've entitled it. Uh, we're just publishing it today. Victor Yara and the Ghosts of the Estadio Nacional. I mean, it just. Incredible story. I mean, one of the guys that was there that day was was Charles Harmon. He had, he's an American uh, journalist, filmmaker. He travelled down to Chile um, from New York because Allende, Allende was actually the first socialist president of Latin America. Uh, he came in into power in 1970. The coup happened on the 11th of September, 1973. So everybody talks about 9-11 in America, but Chile had their own 9-11 well before um, the, the 9-11 in, in America. And, and Charles Harmon went up to uh, Vindel Mar, which is on the coast of Chile. He had a friend over from New York, uh, Terry uh, Simon, and he brought her up to see the sights. And while they were up there, this was a day before the coup, there was a lot of American personnel, soldiers on the ground. There was um, warships on the coast, and they couldn't understand this. So when the coup happened... The, the, the American soldiers that were on the ground in Vindelmar were, you know, were high-fiving and they were delighted because um, Nixon and Kissinger were supporting the coup. So he managed, Charles Harmon managed to get back to Chile, getting a lift with General Ray Davies from the U.S. Army. But three days later, because he took notes, because he took notes about America's involvement, he was picked up, a dozen Chilean soldiers called to his house and they took him away. They brought him to the stadium, the same stadium that, that Brazil won the World Cup in. And um, he was shot dead and his body was put into a wall in the stadium. And his father, Ed Harmon from America, actually had to come to Chile. The American diplomats there refused to deal with him. And he, he only through the help of the Ford Foundation in America, he found out that his son had been killed in the stadium. So just the sort of an incredible story, something that I felt that needed to be told. And, and obviously the Republic of Ireland, I think Owen Hans scored that day in Chile, who was a former manager of Ireland, and Jimmy Conway, who played for Fulham, that Ireland won 2 1. So just interesting because it's interesting in the fact that the Soviet Union, who played uh, Chile in 73 um, for uh, a World Cup place, uh, you know, for uh, there was a playoff to get to the 74 World Cup in West Germany. They refused to play in the stadium because of what happened, what went on um, in the stadium, uh, whereas the Republic of Ireland went, uh, even though that was a time around the same period that rugby teams refused to play in South Africa, including their own Irish team. 
So it's just interesting. You know, it's something different, but an incredible tale, really. I think our own team, I think Ireland would go to South Africa, but I think they did go and play in South Africa. But I remember seeing a piece about it. I was researching something else and it popped up. Great to have Google. <laughs> no, that's that's fascinating. And you mentioned there in, in that Patrick O'Connell, which I know you have very close links to, an amazing football story, a very sad story in the end. And also very sad that Patrick put football before family. So can you give the listeners an insight into his life in and outside of football? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, um, well, first of all, Patrick O'Connell's a Dubliner. Um, he was born on Jones's Terrace, which incredibly now is the entrance to Hill 16. So he's a true blue. Um, the family lived at number 11, Jones's Terrace, which doesn't exist anymore. He was, he was born in 1887. So, you know, it was about 30 years after the famine. Um, Ireland was under British rule. I suppose he very much son of 12, working class, um, lived in a two up, two down. The family moved to Fitzroy Avenue, which is across the road from Crow Park. Educated in O'Connell School, which is just uh, just up from Crow Park. Played football day and night, was obsessed with the game. And uh, I suppose, as I mentioned earlier, he started his working life in Boland's Mills was a foreman by the age of 15, which is incredible thing. Showed his leadership skills, future leadership skills. Played for a club called Liffey Wanderers, who are on the south side of Dublin. The biggest trophy in Irish football in that period, now we're talking 05, 1905, 06, 07, was the Empire Cup. Patrick O'Connell and Liffey Wanderers won it three years in a row and the club were presented with the trophy. A fantastic youth footballer. Um, spotted, interestingly, didn't go to Bohemians, didn't go to Shelbourne, who were the two big clubs at the time in Dublin, but went to Belfast Celtic. And the reason probably was because his wife or his future wife had got pregnant out of wedlock. So they didn't, they needed to leave Dublin. So he moved to Albert Street in Belfast. Anybody knows Albert Street? Anybody knows Belfast? It's across the road from the International Wall where, where Danny Devaney and Marty Lyons paint their murals. Albert Street's also the same street that the Conlins lived on. Giuseppe Conlon, uh, Jerry Conlon, who were who uh, part of the Guildford Four. Moved there in 1908. Started off life as a centre forward with Belfast Celtic. First man to score a hat-trick against their rivals, Linfield. So it's like Celtic and Rangers. And... Because of an injury crisis, became a, a centre half. And within one season, Sheffield Wednesday signed him up and he went to play in the first division. He spent, uh, that was 1909. So spent a um, couple of seasons at Hillsborough, became an Irish international. He made his debut against England in 1912, Daly Mount Park. England won out 6-1, but um, it was the start of something because within two years, Ireland had never won the British Home Championship. British Home Championship was then the trophy. It was played between Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England. And um, this was pre-FIFA. This was pre-UEFA. So if you won the British Home Championship, you were the wor- nearly like the world champions of soccer. Now, Ireland had never won it before. So in 1914, they bet Wales at Wrexham 2-1. They played England at Ayrson Park, the former home of Middlesbrough Football Club. 
was on Valentine's Day. They call it the Valentine, Valentine's Massacre. Ireland bet England 3-0. O'Connell captained the side, that team. There's people like Mickey Hamill, who's from Belfast Celtic as well, and um, went on to play for Manchester United. So, final game was played at Windsor Park. Ireland just needed to, to draw, uh, to clinch the championship. So, they um, played Scotland. Scotland actually took the lead. And in the first half, O'Connell broke his arm. There was no substitutions in those days. Couldn't make any subs. So he played through the pain barrier. And then within the last 10 minutes, he set up the equaliser. Long ball in and Ireland scored. There was no trophy. He didn't get a trophy in those days. The British Home Championship trophy came in around the 30s. It was actually a present from from the, the then King of England. Um, so each player got a pocket watch. And inscribed on it was British Home Champions, Ireland. Uh, incredibly, when we started the O'Connell project, we tracked down a guy in the north of, of Ireland and uh, he, his grandfather, he had his grandfather's pocket watch, the pocket watch, the same pocket watch that Patrick O'Connell also received. So that put, when Ireland did that, that's, that sent shockwaves through the British press because Ireland were the whipping boys up until that year. You know, we'd never, you know, we'd hardly won a game, you know. And so, um, we, we won that, we won that championship. So put Patrick O'Connell in the shop window. He was then a whole city. And, um, so Manchester United Football Club came calling uh, in 1914. They paid an astronomical fee, 1000 pounds. Now it probably seems like a pittance today, what, what footballers get, but this was huge. Uh, it was so much money that Manchester United paid Hull City in instalments. So Patrick made his way to Old Trafford, became the first Irish man to captain the club. He spent five years at Old Trafford. Obviously, the World War One didn't help his career um, there. But, you know, interestingly, in 1915, when football was suspended, you have to remember, Andrew, footballers didn't get paid during the summer. They had to, they had to work. They had to be me, like me and you. They had to go out and earn a living. So Patrick O'Connell ended up working in the, in the, um, Trafford, in Ford, Ford Trafford. Ford had their motor company there before they moved to Dagenham. And he, he worked there. Now his family only got out of that thousand pounds, his family only got four pounds. So they lived in a one, they shared a one bedroom house in Blakely in Manchester. Four pounds is all they got out of that transfer. Um, so Patrick O'Connell, he went down to London, um, when, when football was suspended and, um, he, um, started, he played in a club called Leighton Orient, guested for them. He was still signed to Manchester United, but he guested for Leighton Orient. He started working in a muni- munitions factory in, um, the East End of London. So you have to remember at the same time as World War One, the Easter Rising was happening. O'Connell knew Oscar Trainer, who had played for Belfast Celtic, was, was involved with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And what happened was O'Connell had access to a car, which in those days was, you know, nobody had a car. But this man had access because he worked in Ford, he had access to a car. So Patrick O'Connell took some of the munitions that were in the factory in the East End of London, put them into his car and got them across to Dublin for the Easter Rising. 
He was involved in gun running for the Easter Rising. So if you think of, could you think of Brian Robson or Roy Kane, you know, gun running? This is a Manchester United football captain. So he, he, he that's what, that, that shows, gives you an insight to his politics, very much left-leaning, which would come, you know, into more focus when he went to Spain. Now, I suppose when he, when he finished up at Manchester United, uh, he ended up actually playing in Scotland. He played for Dumbarton. Now, interestingly, Celtic fans might be interested in this. One of his first games in Scotland was, was at Celtic Park against Celtic. And he, he would have marked the great Patsy Gallagher, the, the atom. And he played there for, for, for two seasons. And then he went to Ashington, which is obviously the home of, uh, Jack Charlton, Bobby Charlton, Jackie Milbourne. And he led them into the football league. And there was a guy called Fred Pentland who was in Spain. And he came and brought his racing Santander team on a tour of the northeast of England. And they played a couple of games in the northeast of England. And Pentland knew O'Connell because Pentland had played for England. O'Connell had played for Ireland. And he, he was leaving to go to, go to Atletico Bilbao, uh, to manage them. Uh, he actually went on to win, uh, a number of La Ligas with Bilbao, but he recommended O'Connell to go to Santander. And that's how he got his move to, to Santander. Now, interestingly, you talk about the family. Um, Patrick O'Connell was an alcoholic. He was today three out of five footballers who, who finish football suffer with addiction. Today, three out of five footballers get divorced. That's a fact. Now, Patrick O'Connell, this was the 1920s. Patrick O'Connell hadn't lived with his family because he was traveling. He was in Scotland. He was in Ashington and his marriage was unraveling. And, but because he was a Catholic and because he was a staunch Catholic and because the church probably would have, you know, he would have gone against all the beliefs in the church. He couldn't get divorced. So his escape was to go to Spain, but he sent money home, he sent letters home, but he left his family. So he, he landed in a, in a, in a Spain that was before La Liga in 1923. He landed in Racing Santander, spent five seasons there and won five regional titles. This is before La Liga. So in 1929, when they formed, like, so the Spanish football authorities agreed to start the league. T- 10 teams are involved. So the great teams, the top teams that are still involved today, like Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. They're at the top table. So the authorities say, well, look, we're going to have a playoff for a position, for the last position. So this involves teams like Sevilla, Real Betty, Racing Santander, Oviedo. You know, so Patrick O'Connell wins the tournament and Racing Santander are part of La Liga. So this man is part of the foundation of what is one of now probably one of the greatest leagues in European football. He, he, he subsequently moves from Santander to Oviedo. And while he's at, o, o, at Oviedo, he uncovers probably, you know, just a, a team that will play in La Liga. He, he uncovers a chap called Isidro Langara. Now, Langara is, he's a teenager. He's, he's, he walks into the stadium and the, the team is training one day and he says to O'Connell, I'd like a trial. You know, I'd like to play for Oviedo. So O'Connell spends 20 minutes on the pitch for him. He's a 17 year old kid, signs him immediately. The board of directors go ballistic. You know, 
what are you doing here? This guy's a rough diamond. You know, this is crazy. And um, Langara is the top goal scorer, uh, becomes top goal scorer in Spain in La Liga, plays in the top division and um, is is probably the Basque, the greatest footballer from the Basque region that, that nobody's ever heard of probably. That he's Cristiano Ronaldo of his day. And, and it was due to Patrick O'Connell. Um, and we get him on the film. We have the, the piece on the film where he says, you know, only for Patrick O'Connell, the Irish man, I, I wouldn't play football today. Nobody would know me. And this guy becomes one of the best goal scorers in Spanish football history. You know, so in those early 1930s, Barcelona are, are tempted by O'Connell, but it doesn't happen. So he goes south, he goes to Seville, he goes to Real Betis. A very interesting team and a team that might be of interest to Celtic fans because one of their founders, a man called Manuel Asensio uh, Ramos, he goes to school in Scotland. He's, he's, he's taught by the Maris brothers, by, by Brother Walford, by the people who founded Celtic Football Club. He becomes a Celtic fan. He goes to, you know, Celtic's early games and um, he takes home a Celtic jersey to Seville and, and a green and white jersey and, and they wear green and white Real Betis, uh, to this day. So you have that history. You have O'Connell who's come from Belfast Celtic. It's a perfect mix. And, and O'Connell goes to Betis. This is a team that spent, that spent their time yo-yoing be- between the second division and the first division. This is the original Leicester City story of winning La Liga. Um, so they're mid-table. They, they win the second division title. And then 1934-35, tomorrow is the anniversary. They win La Liga. Patrick O'Connell, it's the only time they've ever won La Liga. The only teams like, you know, there's only nine sides that have ever won La Liga and, and Betis are one of them. And it's an incredible achievement. I mean, the papers, you know, before he wins it, they, 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 they beat his old club racing Santander 5-0 to pip Madrid by a point. And throughout the whole season, the papers are saying, no, O'Connell, he, they can't do it. Betis, they'll, they'll, they'll eventually, you know, fail. Something will go wrong. You know, this is incredible. You know, this is bringing a team who had an average attendance of 7,000, you know, a couple of years before to, to the Kings of Spain. So Patrick O'Connell then becomes Don Patricio. He's known everywhere in Spain. You know, this is, this is the greatest achievement. You know, this is like the minnows. It's like, I don't know. Um, Bornley went in the Premier League. You know, it's it's just an incredible achievement. And so it becomes Don Patricio and then FC Barcelona come calling. And and Barcelona are, you know, they're they're going through a bad period. They, they I think they finished sixth or seventh um that year that 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 Betty uh win uh La Liga. And so Joseph Sunyol uh comes down to the to City to to, to sign him and um he agrees to go. It breaks his heart, but he knows that, look, you know, this, I cannot refuse. This is one of the biggest clubs in world football. So he, he, he heads north. He goes to Catalan. So this is the final season before the Spanish Civil War breaks out. So the final game in 1936 was, be, was a cup final between Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. It was the original El Clasico. It was the first final between the clubs. Uh, most of the players that played, will will take sides. Some will join the nationalist side, the Franco side, others will join the Republican side. 
But Real Madrid went out 2-1 winners uh, on the day. And um, Patrick O'Connell goes home to Ireland. He's, he's in Ireland. And the week the Spanish Civil War breaks out, he gets a telegram from FC Barcelona and it says, look, you don't have to come back. You know, th- there's war here. It's really bad. Things have escalated out of control here and, and there won't be any football. So if you want to terminate your contract, you know, you're, we're happy for you to do that. But he goes back. He goes back. Incredibly, he goes back to FC Barcelona. He trains the team every day and they win the Mediterranean League, which is what Barcelona see as a La Liga title. And um, I suppose you have to understand, that, that, you know, during that period, players, they, they travelled at night to away games for fear of death. They would have been killed. That's the sort of thing that was going on in the country. And they win this league and, and that trophy is in Camp Nou Museum and Barcelona see it as a La Liga uh, title. And they've actually fought the authorities to say, you know, this should be, it should be stated here that this was a La Liga title. So in fact, Patrick O'Connell won La Liga twice, if, if you think about it. And so in 37, they, they go on the tour of, um, of Mexico. They, they, they call it the tour of salvation in Barcelona. Now you have to, you have to realize that Joseph Sunyol, the president that, that, that signed O'Connell, he was assassinated. In, in the hills outside Madrid, he went down to a meeting and on his way leaving Madrid, he was shot dead. His body was never found. And there's uh, some fans, uh, the friends of Josef Sunyal, they're a group in Barcelona that they, they put a little plaque in, in the mountains in memory of Sunyal. So that's the sort of thing that th- at that time they're facing. So you know, Patrick O'Connell and his team, you know, so it's survival. It's how do you keep this club alive? You know, how do we keep Barcelona Football Club alive? So they get a, through the Mexican government, uh, the president there was Cardenas and quite left-leaning socialist who was supportive of the Republican cause in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. So he gets in contact with the club and they come up with this idea that the team will travel to Mexico to play exhibition games and, and in that way they can raise monies to keep, keep the club alive. So they take a train to Paris and, and on that day they took a train. Mussolini and Hitler, who were supporting Franco, dropped, dropped bombs on, on the city, uh, Barcelona. So they, they, but they managed to get out. They get to Paris. This is May 1937. Interestingly, Ireland are playing France that same week. O'Connell meets some of his for, you know, fellow Irishmen in Paris. So while Ireland are beating France in Paris, Patrick O'Connell is going down to the local bank account, bank in, 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 in Paris to open a secret bank account, which ultimately this is where the monies will be wired back that they make in, in, in Mexico and New York. And, and they then, um, went to San Nazaré, which is on the coast of, France to sail on a, on a refugee ship to Mexico. Now you have to realize on that ship, there was also young kids uh, being put on the ship by parents and um, they'd never see Spain again. They became orphans in Mexico. So they, they sailed for two weeks via Havana, Cuba and landed in Veracruz in Mexico. And um, there's actually a statue to all those who landed in Veracruz um, from the, 
from the Spanish Civil War in Spain and um, dedicated to those who, who landed there. The children, actually during the journey, O'Connell used to let the kids come up and play football with the, um, with the Barcelona players. Thousands were at the quayside when the, when the ship landed. Um, it was actually called the Mexica, the ship. And, um, uh, President Cardenas was there to greet both the Barcelona team and the children, you know, and all the refugees who, who had arrived because in essence, they were refugees. Um, this was June 1937. Um, the first team that O'Connell and Barcelona played was Club America, who are like the Manchester United of Mexican football. They play at the Azteca Stadium. Um, the same stadium that Diego Maradona scored those two wonderful goals against England. And, um, they, 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 they played 10, 10 matches in Mexico. Um, the last team they played against was a club called Orizaba, which was formed by Scots, by Scotsman, by, by workers who went out to Mexico to work in Orizaba. It's a small club. It's quite close to Veracruz. Um, Barcelona ran out seven three winners. We went to Orizaba as part of the film, and they have a museum there dedicated to the team. And many years after the game, they found the original poster of the match in a skip, and it was put into the museum. So the team, I suppose, what was happening as well as playing the matches, O'Connell and his colleagues were were giving speeches before the games about telling people, telling those who were coming to the matches about what was happening back in Spain and, you know, what was happening in Barcelona, what was happening in Madrid and, and how people were being attacked and what was happening in the country and, and sort of promoting the Republican cause in Mexico. And, um, and from Mexico, they got an offer then to go to New York and they played six games in New York. They played a club called St. Mary's and who were founded, named after the church that Celtic was founded from in Brooklyn in New York, played six matches, mainly around the New York area. Um, so the monies, the secret bank account that was opened in Paris, the monies that they raised, O'Connell wired it back to the secret bank account. And those monies actually stayed there until after the Second World War. Those monies kept the club alive. As I, as I mentioned, they, they call it the Tour of Salvation in Barcelona. Only four players went back with Patrick. The rest absconded. They stayed in Mexico. Uh, interestingly, there was a Basque team toured later during the Civil War as well, the Basque national team, and Langaro toured with them, who had played with O'Connell. They became a club side in Mexico called um, Club Deportivo Euskadi. Um, they came second in the Mexican League in 1939, and a, a number of the Barcelona players played with that team in Mexico that, that stayed in the country. But O'Connell went back. He brought four players back with him. He had no team. So he rebuilt the, the side. They won another version of the Mediterranean League, uh, kept the club alive. He left in 1940, but Barcelona stayed alive. Uh, went back to London. Incredibly, within six months, got back into Spain. This is a new Spain. This is a Spain ruled by General Franco, O'Connell's greatest enemy, uh, the man who wants to rule FC Barcelona. He he gets a job with Betty, and they're back in the second division. He wins the second division. He then incredibly transfers to Sevilla. This is like going from Celtic to Rangers. Sevilla have never won La Liga. This is the early 40s. 
He builds a team. They, they, they finish second in La Liga. And in 1945, he's left the stage. He's just the season before, after he leaves. The team he built, they win Sevilla's only ever La Liga title. Patrick goes back to Santander. He becomes a scout, stays in Spain until the, the 50s. Sadly, goes back to London, can't get a job because nobody knows him. There was no European football then. There was no Champions League. There was no European Cups, no UEFA. This is pre European club competition. Can't get a job in English football. Draws national assistance, basically penniless during the day. Becomes an alcoholic, drinks in the Irish pubs around, you know, the London Irish areas. Ends up begging outside King's Cross railway station and is found dead in the attic close by Argyle Street age 71 and uh, is taken to St. Pancras Hospital and uh, dies of pneumonia and then is put in an unmarked grave and um, he spends 57 years in an unmarked grave his story buried with him his brother is the only person that goes to his funeral in 1957 Camp Nou was being opened Patrick O'Connell the man who'd saved the club 20 years earlier was begging on the streets of London Nobody asked for him, nobody invited him to this great opening, this, you know, this fantastic stadium. Because when Patrick O'Connell was manager of Barcelona, they played at their stadium was Lake Courts, which is now a family park just down from Camp Nou. Um, but Patrick was begging on the streets of London, you know, the day that Camp Nou opened after saving the club 20 years earlier. And that's one of the things in football, you know, this man was forgotten about. So I suppose that's where we uh, came in with the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund. Uh, it was a complete fluke, Andrew. I mean, this man could still be in a unmarked grave. It's a fascinating story. It's it's. I'm sitting here in silence. It's it, it's fascinating, and I've, I've I've read some stuff on, on Patrick, and but you've painted a a broader picture, and. I suppose our interest was, you know, Belfast Celtic and, and maybe Barcelona, Red Betis, but there's a lot in between and a lot after and a lot before. Unbelievable story of Patrick O'Connell. And Fergus, also a top bloke, Ferg, it was Fergus that highlighted the, the plight of the Debenhams walkers to me. And in, in part two next week, he chats about his involvement in the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund and the documentary film of it. And he also takes us to Chile for another unbelievable story. So, Make sure you tune in for that one. As always, I would like to thank Ronan McQuillan for producing the show and thanks to you for listening. And folks, just a reminder, if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, as all our content is free, we don't have a paywall, we don't have a Patreon, you can donate for the price of a pint or a coffee. You can also become a member, subscribe to the fanzine or buy some of our merch or t-shirts on our website, salicfanzine.com. I know I keep going on a bit on each podcast, but it is what keeps us going. Don't forget to visit the website for daily news and articles and also the very popular David Potter's weekend and midweek long reads. And you can also sign up for our newsletter. Check out our bonus podcasts and podcast shorts. Don't forget to download the app. It's free and you'll have access to everything we do, podcasts, articles, daily news, video and all upcoming events. And we will have news of upcoming events because things are starting to get back to normal slowly. And we're really looking forward to announcing some events in 2022. 
When you have the app as well, you can be able to have access to everything at the touch of a button on your phone or tablet. All episodes of the podcast are available across all platforms. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button. It costs nothing and then you'll get an alert whenever we release a podcast because we are doing a few more things now. We've got the Celtic Soul podcast. We've got Talk of the Terrace. We've had the Celtic AM show. And we also have a few surprises up our sleeve for the coming weeks. The Celtic Fanzine TV channel is off and running again. All the podcasts are also available on that, plus the video um, of all the content. And we're delighted to say that we will have the full uncut Paul Heaton two-hour interview coming up soon. So Daniel Faulkner, get your finger out and get that ready. And I have to thank Dan for his contribution over the last couple of weeks since he joined us. I've been, I suppose, annoying him on and off at all times of the day and night to get stuff finished, and he's been brilliant. And I'm one of the Celtic AMs. He walked into the wee hours on um, a Saturday night, Sunday morning. So I really appreciate all the stuff you're doing for Stan. If you want to follow us on social media, and a lot of talk about social media this week with the bands from the football clubs, but you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And on Instagram, we will be uploading some of our video content, so you can check it out there. And you can also go straight into our Spotify account from the Celtic Fanzine page on Instagram, and you can listen to all the podcasts there as well. If your business is Celtic-minded and like what we're doing, or your Celtic Supporters Club would like to support the podcast or the fanzine, you can do so by contacting us at info at CelticFanzine.com and we'll send you out all the information. What can I say about this weekend? I'd love to be in the pub, I'd love to be in a beer garden, but I know I'm getting closer to it here in my hometown of Drada, and I'm looking forward to getting back in June when we can get back to hotels, I think, early in June. And then on the 7th of June, I will be camping outside the local pub to make sure I get a seat in the beer garden until I'm carried out. But in the meantime, I am looking forward to the match on Sunday. I think we can restore some pride. We can put um, a stop to this talk of the Invincibles, even though they were beaten in the League Cup and the Scottish Cup. And a big shout out to St Mirren and St Johnson for doing that. If you want to listen to some uh, more podcasts, folks, and you've enjoyed the one with Fergus, here's a couple of suggestions for the long weekend. Obviously, the Paul Heen, episodes 61 and 64, both parts of that podcast, well worth checking out. Johnny Owen, episode 54, who made the Three Kings documentary film on Steen, Shanking and Busby. Martin O'Neill's dugout sidekick and former Celtic and Ireland coach Steve Walford also joined us. I just can't think of the episode number. Check out Jerry Payton, former Irish goalkeeper, and his tribute to Jack Charlton. And Celtic Daft, former Scottish international and Man United, Jim Callier, joined us a couple of months ago as well. So if you enjoyed the Fergus one, I think you might enjoy these ones as well. So folks, that's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting us. Stay safe, keep the faith, and this week we're going to play out with our team tune, Our Time, and a lot of people have been asking about it. So... I said to Ronan, can you dig out the recording and play it for us? And I'll just get Ronan to come in and tell you a little bit of the song. Yeah, so this is a little song myself and uh, the actor Colin O'Donoghue when he used to be in the band The Enemies with me uh, before he left to do amazing things and be a Hollywood star as he is. Um, but, but this is one of the last songs I think we recorded together and you can hear Colin's vocals in this as well um, yeah and we just never released it but um, 2013 I think was when we wrote it because we were on our way to the States to do a tour and it was a kind of like an anthem protesty kind of thing that we wanted to make sure that people could kind of clap and dance and sing along to and it's 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 kind of gotten buried over the years so I found the original recording of it and here it is I hope you enjoy this um, but it's it's the, the theme tune to the Celtics Hold podcast and uh, I think it's a good fit so you've heard it a million times but here it is with the words enjoy have a good weekend
are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.